The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'd to ask if you would to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We'll be continuing our study this morning on the parable of the seed in the soils. Asking again, how do you hear? I was doing a little research this week on the question, what is the most powerful sound in history? Now, on August 27, 1883, out in the Pacific, the island of Krakatoa, a volcanic island, erupted with the most violent eruption that had ever been measured in modern history. That island, before the eruption, soared over 1,400 feet high off over the surface of the Pacific Ocean. But on that uh, morning, that island was erased to a depth of more than 1,000 feet below, below the surface of the sea. That's 2,400 feet of mountain vaporized and thrown up into the air. They estimate a height of 17 miles high. 17 miles high, the wreckage erupted into the air. The sound from that volcano is reputed to be the loudest in the history of the human race. Heard over one-thirteenth the size of the earth. A distance of over 3,000 miles away. The Rodriguez Islands, 3,000 miles away, heard the sound. Can you imagine some event in California... And you could hear the sound here in North Carolina. 3,000 miles away. Now that is probably the loudest sound in history. But is it the most powerful sound in history? The answer is no. For the most powerful sound in history is the simple proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just whispered next to a, a, a co-worker, a friend, or a neighbor, on a, uh, or even a total stranger on an airplane. That is the most powerful sound in history. The simple gospel whispered to a neighbor, more powerful than that sound. Isn't that incredible? You know the story of Elijah when he went into the mount, uh, the cave at Mount Carmel. And on that cave, he was going to see the Lord. And he wanted to see the Lord. Actually, it was Mount Horeb. He wanted to see the Lord, and the Lord was going to come to him. And the Lord did not come to him in the earthquake. And the Lord did not come to him in the powerful wind. And nor did he come in the fire, but in the gentle, soothing voice the still small voice of the Lord. And when he heard it, he covered his face. So also must we be when we hear the simple proclamation of the word of God. For the kingdom of heaven advances through the hearing of the word. That's all. And so it is for all of you who hope in heaven today, whose sins have been forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. It is so because you heard with faith the word of God, the message of the kingdom. Now, for the third straight week, we're looking at this incredible parable of the seed in the soils. And Jesus said in verse 3, the kingdom of heaven is like someone who went out to sow his seed. A farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. The birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where the soil was shallow. They sprang up quickly, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered and died because they had no root. Some fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants, making them unfruitful. 
Still other f- fell on good soil where it produced a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, and thirty times what was sown. And then Jesus challenged his hearers with these words. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Are you ready to hear the most powerful sound in the history of the world today? Is your heart ready to hear the word of God? There is no more powerful sound than the word of God. It can transform a family. It can transform an individual. It can transform a nation. It can transform a world. It can usher you from hell to heaven. That is the power of the word of God. Are you ready to hear it today? Now, last week we looked at the first two soil types. The first was the beaten path, that hard-packed soil like concrete. When the word falls on that soil, it bounces. It makes no indentation at all, no impact on the heart. No impact whatsoever. This is the hardened soil. It's the heart of an unbeliever who through sin and through unbelief and through uh, wickedness and rebellion is not ready to receive the word. And the devil comes, it says, and snatches away what was sown in his heart. The result of that, ultimately, the result of unbelief is eternal condemnation in hell. And we talked about that last week. The second soil type is the rocky soil. What we call the superficial, shallow, temporary believer. Look at verse 20 and 21. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places, the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. This is the temporary believer. Now, we worked on this last time and said, is it really possible that there could be such a thing as a temporary believer? The answer is yes. Jesus says in the parallel version, Luke 8, he believed for a while. And so there it is. Jesus has settled that question. But what did he believe? What was the nature of his belief? Was it true justifying belief? Well, we know that that would be impossible. You cannot lose your justification, so it's not that type of faith. There's a different kind of faith, a superficial one, an emotional one. And this one has received the word with joy. He's thrilled. He's excited. He he tells all his friends, my life has changed. I found everything that I've been looking for. It's all here. And, And he starts to get involved in the Christian life to go to church. He's excited for a while. Until all of a sudden, trouble or persecution comes because of the word. And we talked about that last time. Persecution means the world attacks. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe a spouse. Maybe it's just somebody who isn't as excited as you are about your new life and begins to oppose you, begins to attack you. Maybe it's the government. Maybe you get thrown in jail. It's difficult, persecution. Or trouble because of the word. Maybe it's the deep searching of your soul. And you begin to realize that certain patterns of your life are inconsistent with the kingdom. But you're not willing to let them go. And so trouble has come because of the word. Either way, you have no root system. No genuine connection to the vine. And so you have no staying power. No ability to survive when the sun comes up and beats down and it gets tough to be a Christian. And so this plant withers and dies because it has no root. This is the shallow temporary believer. In the mind, there's no genuine understanding. In the soul, there's no genuine brokenness over sin. And in the relationship with God, no lasting conversion and love for God. And so there's no root. Now, today we're going to begin to look at the third type of soil, and that is the double-minded man. The double-minded man. Look at verse 22. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns 
is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. So this is the thorny soil. And so you've got soil that clearly can support life. It's not the hard-packed soil of the first type. It's not even the shallow, superficial, you know, light covering of topsoil you get in the second type. This apparently can support life and do very well. But it's very much like a garden overgrown with weeds. Now, some of you are into gardening. Do you enjoy weeding? Do you enjoy it? Do you enjoy getting down on your hands and knees and pulling out those weeds? First of all, it's kind of hard to define what a weed is because God created all those plants. I guess a weed would be something you don't want there. Now, that's a weed, right? Nobody enjoys weeding a garden, but any true gardener knows it is indispensable to a healthy garden. You must weed the garden. Rudyard Kipling put it this way. Yes, he wrote a poem about weeding. And this is what it says. Our England is a garden, and such gardens are not made by singing, oh, how wonderful, and sitting in the shade, while better men than we go out and start their working lives by grubbing weeds from garden paths with broken dinner knives. You want a good garden? You've got to get out there and weed it, right? Get those broken dinner knives and start grubbing out the weeds. And if you don't, you won't have a garden. William Shakespeare said, sweet flowers are slow, but weeds make haste. All right? You want some fruit, you want something good, you want a beautiful flower, it takes a long time. But weeds, they grow quickly and well, don't they? One preacher saw a sign along a country road, hand-painted sign on a, on a piece of plywood, and it said, free weeds, you pick them yourself. <laughs> now, I'm thinking that might be an approach, but I don't know how many customers we would get. You can take as many as you like out. But I've thought much about this, and this is anonymous. It is not enough for a gardener to love flowers. He must also hate weeds. And so it is in the Christian life. Why the weeding then? Because there's only so many nutrients in the soil. There's only so much moisture. There's only so much sunlight. And if all of these other plants are towering over that little plant that is trying to grow, it cannot survive. Notice what it says in verse 7. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Do you see that? Choked. Strangled. Drowned. For lack of air. It's the same word. And so this seed is choked off from what it needs for life and fruitfulness. The available resources in the soil are getting sucked up by the aggressive thorns. They grow faster and they dominate the soil. And so that little plant has no chance to bear fruit. Now, in the parable, what is it that chokes out the seed and makes it unfruitful? Jesus tells us. It is the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. The worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. Let's start with the worries of life. What does this mean? Well, I think it's a negative sense of fears and concerns over not having enough. Enough to survive. Enough to live. Worries about your physical health. Will I be healthy? Will I be alive? Will my family have enough to live on? Will we have a roof over our heads? Will we have clothes for our backs? Food for our bellies? These are the basic concerns of life, physical life. Worries of this life. And part of it is tied, connected in every way to the fact that we are created dependent beings. With these things right here in the center of our persons that get cyclically empty. 
and need to be filled three times a day. Have you noticed the phenomenon? It's called getting hungry. Some of you may be hungry right now. And so you need to be fed. Therefore, we are created dependent. Say, we're not dependent. All we have to do is go down to Kroger's and get everything we need. Oh, how little we know of the agrarian life. How far we have been removed from our dependence on God. Farmers know that they need God in order to survive. And so the worries of this life is a farmer or anybody who says, I don't even know if we'll be alive six months from now. Paralyzed by that, concerned by it, therefore can do nothing for the kingdom of heaven. Let's say God calls somebody to quit their job and go overseas as a tent maker, be a missionary in some unreached people group. What do you think is the first thing that's going to start crawling into their mind? Could it be the worries of this life? Could it be concern for family? What about my children? What about me? What about my wife and I? We never really liked that kind of food or we don't really know if we're going to survive. Will there be enough money? These are the worries of this life. And so the person may at that point shrink back and may not be faithful in the end. So that's the worries of this life. What will I eat? What will I drink? What will I wear? Basic commodities. But then there's another one, isn't there? The deceitfulness of wealth. Now, with the worries of this life, we're talking about the basic commodities, what you need to survive. This goes beyond that, doesn't it? Will I have the things I want? Will I have the things I crave? Will I have luxuries? The deceitfulness of wealth is a hungering after luxury. Wealth implies abundance. It says in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Wealth is deceitful. It's a con artist that leads you away from the true path of service to God. Little by little, dragging you away and enticing you. Businessmen may wake up and find that his mind is only dominated and saturated with his business doesn't think at all about the kingdom of God or about Christ, but only how he can run and make money that day. And he does run 60 hours a week to make his business everything that it can be, little knowing that he is way off the path. The deceitfulness of wealth, it's tricky. And in the end, this preoccupation with material prosperity leads to destruction. It becomes unfruitful. Jesus says that the thorns grow up and choke the plant, making it unfruitful. This is crop failure. And to me, this is a key insight into this whole text. Unfruitful means not Christian. They're not a Christian. Now, I will speak later to the fact, what if I see certain tendencies? What if I'm somewhat like the shallow soil? What if I'm somewhat like the thorny soil? I'll talk to that in a moment. But the final verdict on this is unfruitful, end of story. And in that way, I say they're not Christian. Because in order to be Christian, you must bear fruit and so prove yourself to be Christ's disciples. We'll talk about that in a moment. But in the end, there's no fruit at all because it's choked out. This is, therefore, the double-minded man thinking about heaven and thinking also about earth. In the Mark inversion, in Mark 4.19, it says, talks about the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, listen, and the desires for other things choke it, making it unfruitful. Well, that's kind of broad. It's actually kind of uncomfortably broad. Desires for other things. Other than what? Other than the kingdom. Other than the kingdom. 
This individual wants the kingdom of heaven, but he wants the kingdom of earth more. And so it's choked out, making it unfruitful. True Christians, in the end, are amazingly single-minded about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy sold 50% of what he owned to get it. Is that what it says? No, he sold everything he had that he might get that field. Kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of incredible value, he went and sold everything he had that he might buy that pearl. Single-minded. Paul says in Philippians 3, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That's perfection in heaven. I just keep pressing. There's a single-mindedness here. One thing I do. This morning as my kids and I were driving in, we we read Psalm 27. One thing I ask of the Lord. This is what I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze at his beauty. Seeking him in his temple. David was utterly single-minded. He wanted God. He wanted Christ. And so the true convert is single-minded. But this man says, two things I seek. I want God and I want mammon. I want to serve two masters. I want them both. And Jesus has already said, it is impossible to serve two masters. In the end, you will love the one and despise the other. You will make a choice in the end. It isn't just Paul that taught this kind of single-minded devotion to the kingdom. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6.33? Talking about, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And the pagans run after those things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added to you as well. What's these things? Something to eat, something to drink, something to wear. Okay? Not luxuries. The necessities that your father knows what you need. Seek those things first. Seek the kingdom of heaven first and God will add those things to you. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 2.4 taught about being a single-minded soldier. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Well, what is a civilian affair? Anything that your commanding officer has not told you to do. So if you're in the military, your commanding officer tells you, dig that trench, then anything else is a civilian affair, right? This good soldier wants to please his commanding officer, single-minded. But the seed sown among the thorns represents a double-minded man. He wants the kingdom some, but he wants the world more. And in the end, he is unfruitful. Now the fourth soil, the one I hope you're yearning is you. The one I'm yearning is me and that I desire with all my heart. And that is in verse 23. The one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Isn't it interesting that it all begins here in the fourth type of soil with the understanding? It starts in the mind. He receives the word and he understands it. He's not the path whose mind and heart are are hardened by sin and rebellion, and so the seed bounces. 
He's not the hardened path, nor is he the shallow uh, soil that takes it in and and has only a, a simple, superficial, emotional understanding of the message of the kingdom. Nor is he the thorny soil. It's clear to him that the kingdom is worth everything he has to obtain. Now, he understands the message. Now, naturally, we do not possess this kind of understanding. It's not natural to us. We are diagnosed by the physician of our souls. In Ephesians 4.18, it says, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. That's us naturally. Naturally, we don't understand the message about the kingdom. Naturally, our hearts are hard. That's the way we all start. But God the Father has given us true understanding in order that he might save our souls. God the Son gives us true understanding in order that he may save our souls. God the Spirit gives us true understanding in order that he may save our souls. God the Father, it says in Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. So God the Father lavishes wisdom and understanding on us in order that he might forgive our sins. God the Son as well. 1 John 5.20 says, We also know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And so Jesus comes and gives us understanding so we can know God. And the Holy Spirit has that same ministry as well. 1, Timothy 2, or 1 Corinthians 2.12 says, We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. And so God the Father gives us understanding in order that he may save our souls. God the Son gives us understanding in order that he may save our souls. And God the Spirit also gives us understanding in order that he may save our souls. This is the work of the triune God. And if you have come to this understanding of the word and of the message of the kingdom, that it is worth everything you have to you, that the forgiveness of sins and freedom on Judgment Day, that that the judge will sit down there and say, not guilty over you. I know him. I know her. The one of mine, covered in the righteousness of Christ. If you come to this kind of understanding of what Jesus did on the cross, it's not just a man up there, bloody, on a wooden cross. No. That is your Savior. He's your righteousness. He is your hope. And that the empty tomb isn't just an interesting religious oddity, but it is your hope of triumph over the grave. Then God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit has worked this into your mind. So the good soil is the one who hears the word and understands it. In Luke 8.15 it says the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a good crop. Now, where did you get a noble and good heart? (laughs) Were you born with it? Ask your parents. (laughs) They'll tell you the truth, I hope. You weren't born with a noble and good heart. It came to you as a gift from God under the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And by persevering, you produce a crop. Are you suspicious when salesmen tell you that something's 100% guaranteed? 100% guaranteed. Or your money back. The more they talk, the more suspicious I get. Maybe it's just my doubting nature. If you need to talk that much about the guarantee, I worry. But let me give you a guarantee based on the word of God. If you are a Christian, you are guaranteed 100% to bear fruit for the kingdom. 100% guaranteed. If you are born again, if you are regenerate by the Spirit, 
If you are a true born-again Christian, you will 100% guaranteed bear fruit for the kingdom. Shall I turn it around? If you are not bearing fruit for the kingdom, you are not a Christian. Well then, it gets to be kind of important to find out what this fruit is. What is this fruit, this fruit bearing that is guaranteed? First of all, that it is guaranteed is established in the song that Chris sang so beautifully for us earlier. The vine and the branches. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit apart from you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then in verse 8, John 15, 8, he said a vital thing. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, proving yourselves to be my disciples. What does that tell you? If you bear no fruit, you're cut off of the vine, thrown away and burned, Jesus says in that image. You're not a Christian. You must, therefore, bear fruit. Now, from this parable, I get two insights. First of all, fruitfulness is guaranteed... And second of all, the level of fruitfulness varies from Christian to Christian. Do you see that? First of all, all of the seed sown in the good soil produces a crop. Some 100, some 60, or some 30. But in every case, there's some fruit. Now, I mentioned last time that in the ancient Near East, a good yield on a seed was 8 to 1. If you could get 8 seeds back for every 1 seed planted, that was a bumper crop. Wonderful. Jesus is talking about 160 or 30 times what was sown. Jeremy and I did some research on soybean farms, and the best we could find out is that American soybean farms, a good year, a good crop is 30-fold, 30 times what was sown. Jesus is saying that's minimum. That's minimum. 160 or 30 times what was sown. But the secondary lesson is that not every Christian is equally fruitful. Some are more fruitful than others. Now, what is fruit? Are you hungry to find out what that is? Evangelicals have too easily focused just on conversions. That we would be soul winners. And we're going to go out and win other people to Christ. That is most definitely fruit. But I think fruit is far broader and deeper and wider than that. John MacArthur, I think, gives us a helpful uh, categorization of fruit. There are two types. First, attitude fruit. And the second, action fruit. Attitude fruit... And then action fruit. What would attitude fruit be? It's an internal attitude or disposition of the heart. Fruit of the Spirit would be a good indication of these. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These things are produced by the Holy Spirit. And it is good fruit when God sees them. Or to look at the commands, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. This is good fruit, to love your neighbor as yourself. And as God produces this in you, this is attitude fruit, heart fruit, internal fruit. For example, a love for God's word, a yearning to know what it says. A love for God's kingdom and its progress. A love for God's people and their health. And their fruitfulness. A yearning after righteousness. Not just for yourself, but for your brothers and sisters in Christ. A deep desire that you would be in the presence of God. That you would be able to see Him face to face. That's the one thing you want more than anything. A yearning to glorify God in all that you do. A yearning to reveal His nature in the way that you eat and sleep and go to work and have your family life. A yearning for holiness. This is internal heart attitude, and God accepts it as fruit. So also the negative side. 
Just like we said earlier, if you want a good garden, it's not enough to love the flowers. You've got to hate the weeds. And so it is also that we have to hate certain things. We have to love what God loves and we have to hate what God hates. A hatred for evil, a war against sin, a, a desire for total perfection and holiness, grief over sin as intrinsically evil, not just because you might get caught or it might get expensive or embarrassing, but because it's evil. A hatred for sin as sin and as evil. God accepts this as good fruit. So these and many other heart attitudes are considered good fruit produced by the seed of the word. Then there's action fruit. It's what you do with your body. It's how you go out and live, how you actually move through the world, the way you spend your time. Any action that you take for the glory of God and for the spread of his kingdom, that's action fruit. Any prayer that you pray, any cup of cold water given to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, you'll never lose your reward. Anytime you go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen for His kingdom to come and His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That God sees and you'll never lose your reward. Anytime that you act courageously as a witness. Last Sunday afternoon we had some folks that took some real faith steps to go out and witness door to door. It was hard for them. And they glorified God by conquering their fears and going out. God was greatly honored by that. I was talking to one of them as we were coming back. The two of us were talking about the fear. He said, I don't know why I was afraid. This was a wonderful afternoon. I said, I don't know that you'll ever completely get over the fear because the fact of the matter is it's one way we can glorify God. When we feel the fear and go anyway, God is greatly honored. Greatly honored. Fruit, therefore, also is disciples you make, people you lead to Christ and then train up in the faith. Yes, it is. All of these things are fruit. Fruit is using your spiritual gifts. If your gift is encouraging, it is to encourage. If your gift is teaching and you teach, it is to teach. That is fruit. If it is giving and you give generously and in a spirit-filled manner, this brings great glory to God. This is fruit. Fruit is a happy, holy, and godly marriage where husbands love their wives as Christ the church and where wives gladly submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Fruit is a godly, well-ordered home where the children are brought up in the training and nurture of the Lord. And where the children, for their part, put their own sin to death and submit gladly to their parents. This brings great glory to God. Fruit is a series of spiritual disciplines done in secret. Fasting, prayer, scripture memorization, meditation, witnessing, other things that you do that no one will ever know, or perhaps the one person you witness to, and you never tell anyone about it. This is of great glory to God, and this is fruit. Fruit is also conquering, besetting sin in the private battleground of your heart, saying no to yourself and to your lusts and to your sins and triumphing by the power of the Spirit. For a former alcoholic to refuse to drink again and to take each temptation as an opportunity to do battle for God and overcome. To him who overcomes, the crown of victory is given. Or for a typically angry, irritable, complaining person to not do it this time. And to bring honor to God by being cheerful when they don't want to. For a young man to keep his way pure and shield his eyes from anything that would cause him to lust. And for a young lady to choose to dress chastely and purely and not tempt her brothers into sin by what she wears. This is glorifying to God. It's for God's people to refuse to be polluted by this world that we live in. James says this is religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. This and many other things are fruit. Now can you see why I say if you have none of the above, you're not a Christian? You're not a Christian. 
you're not born again. You're dead in your transgressions and sins because you have no fruit. Now, what of the variability of fruitfulness? Why the 160 or 30 times? Because God has left it to us as he also works within us. It's a partnership. Justification is not a partnership. That's a gift. We just accept it freely. But then sanctification becomes co-labor with God. And the more we labor, the more fruit comes. And so I see a hero like George Mueller, who after he wrestled and eventually came into faith in Christ, he was a hundredfold or maybe a hundred thousandfold Christian. I was reading one biography about Mueller and it just listed some of the tangible measurements of his faithfulness. George Mueller opened seven day schools in England. The number of students over 64 years of his life in the day schools was 81,501 students. The amount of money he raised for the day schools over 64 year total, 109,992 pounds, tens of millions of dollars in modern money. Number of Sunday schools that he started in Great Britain, 37. The number of students at the Sunday schools, 32,944 students taught the word of God through George Mueller. Number of Bibles that he gave out or circulated, 1.9 million. How many Bibles have you given or how many portions of scripture have you given? Get a long way before you get to 1.9 million. Amount of money raised for Bible circulation, 41,090 pounds. The number of missionaries that he personally supported financially, 115. Amount of money raised to aid them, 261,859 pounds, millions of dollars. Number of books that he gave out and tracts, 3.1 million. Total number of orphans that he cared for, that was what he was known for the best. Over a 64-year total, he took on 10,029 orphans and cared for them. How would you like to have 10,000 kids? (laughs) You say, now, I think I do have 10,000 kids. Come and visit my home and you will know. No, he literally took on over 10,000 and cared for their bodily needs and also taught them the gospel. Amount of money raised for the orphanage, 988,000 pounds. Total amount of money raised and spent by George Mueller in his lifetime, 1,498,000 pounds. That is hundreds of millions of dollars in modern money. Specific answers to prayer that he recorded and wrote down in a notebook, over 50,000. People led to Christ through his lifetime and through his example, absolutely incalculable. Do you know why? Because all the people he led to Christ would then go on and lead others to Christ and so on and so on. It's impossible to know all the things that came from his life. A hundred, sixty or thirty times what was sown. Now what application can we take from the parable of the seed and the soils? First of all, self-assessment. Look inward. What kind of soil are you? Are you the hard-packed soil? hear the word and blow it off of no interest. No interest at all in the word of God. Or are you the shallow soil that hears and gets all excited but nothing comes of it? Or the thorny soil that hears and is choked out because of the worries of this life and deceitfulness of wealth? Or are you with a good and noble heart through perseverance bearing good fruit for the kingdom? A number of years ago, a good friend of mine who many of you know, Mark Dever, preached a sermon on this parallel text in Luke. And I'll never forget the name of the sermon. It was called Proper Ear Care. It's typical Mark, if you know him at all. I mean, how do you care for your ears? I thought, ooh, you know, do I really want to be thinking about that on Sunday morning? Well, he was picking up on Luke 8.18. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen to the word of God. 
What do you do when you hear a sermon? How do you get ready for it ahead of time? Eric counseled that you be thinking about the passage. He read it this morning. Do you, do you get ready? Do you read it ahead of time? Some of you do. You ask me, where am I going next? And so you get ready and you read ahead of time. Do you come into the sanctuary on Sunday morning ready to hear the word? Ready with, like I said, soft, black, rich soil upturned in the heart. Ready to hear and receive the word. How do you hear? And then after you hear, what do you do about it? How do you hear the word? What's proper ear care? James 1.22 said, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Thirdly, yearning for fruit. Do you want to be like George Mueller? Do you want to be a hundredfold Christian? Are you hungry and thirsty for maximum fruitfulness? Are you willing to pray constantly, Lord, help me to make the most of every opportunity today, Lord. Help me to make the most of this time. Help me to make the most of this time with this relative or friend. Help me to make the most of my Monday or my Tuesday. Oh, God, I want to live for your glory. Help me to make the most of my life. Lord, help me to dig deep into the word and not just superficially read it, but really dig in and understand it. Help me to, help me to put my flesh to death in my, sin, in my prayer time and really pray with passion for the lost. In the end, time and fruit will tell true Christianity. We go out and witness, last Sunday we did, and, and we do it. Don't so quickly assure people of salvation because they prayed the sinner's prayer. I have sadly seen many people pray the sinner's prayer and never once go to church and never once do anything different in their life whatsoever. Remember this parable when you preach the gospel. And remember that not everyone who prays that prayer is truly born again. But rather, lay before them the marks of a truly godly, healthy life and say, yearn for these things. Search for them. Time and perseverance in fruit-bearing is the surest mark of saving faith. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.